My father was always a Newcastle fan, and I was proud. I was a real manager. I became besotted with football. I was a bit of a star, a little prodigy in my little village. So many failed. You think managing is easy? I was in the manager for eight years. Eight years. George, I don't think he's been a manager in a game like me. I loved Ipswich and European nights with Porto, Sporting Lisbon, PSV, and obviously Barcelona. I came home and I, I, George, I think I did a hell of a job. You know, the northeast means uh, a lot to me. Maybe the legacy, which is just as important to me, is that I'm going to try and help people fight cancer. So you know, I, I've been lucky. This is Bobby 90, a four-part podcast series brought to you by The Athletic to mark what would have been Sir Bobby Robson's 90th birthday. My name is George Culkin, and towards the end of his life, I worked with Sir Bobby on his final book. We looked at photographs, stirred memories, turned pages. It took Sir Bobby on a journey, his journey, from his early days as a miner's son in County Durham, through his mazy career in management, back home to Newcastle, and finally as his health declined, leading what he would describe as his last and greatest team, the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. These recordings brought to you by kind permission of Sir Bobby's family have never been heard before. In this first episode, we return to his childhood and the village of Langley Park, a community built on two things, coal and football. My father was always a Newcastle fan. And in his younger life, he must have gone quite regularly because he went to the Cup 5 at 32. But then he started to take me and my brother Ron regularly to Newcastle United from about 1940-45. And therefore, Newcastle was very much part of the household. And my father used to talk about the players. I mean, Sullivan or Millsborough or anybody else never ended my life. Never ended my life. My village was split. I think it's split about 50-50 now, but when I was there, my village was three-quarter Newcastle and a quarter Sullivan. So it was dominated by Newcastle because the buses went direct. I could hardly wait for him to take me to the games. And when he did, I can remember it. I remember it. We first went to the section through the Shillin and Sixpence area, got handed down, and then later on, towards the 50s, we went and we sat down in the... Uh, yeah, because it was a bit dangerous where we were. Yeah. Got friendly. Newcastle, the big city, it was a big day out. We would go on the bus, my father and my brother and I, we should go to Phoenix, I'm sure it was Phoenix, and they had an upstairs restaurant. And we would get there, and we would have two ham sandwiches and a cup of tea or coffee. That was our lunch. And then we'd hurry to the stadium. And George, we were first in the queue. There was always a lady there, and I I, I can always remember her. And my father would always have a nice hello for her. She was a mad Geordie Newcastle supporter. And my father and I, 
and this lady, whose name I will never remember, we were the first in the queue for the gates to open. We would be, we'll be there at 12.30. Later on, we, we sat down. I can remember running up, to the, up the slope to the stadium, and on the right-hand side, there were what they called unreserved seats. The rest were reserved and season tickets, I suppose, in those days. But the wing stand, the A stand, was unreserved seats. First come, first served. I loved Albert Stubbins, big guy and good in the hair and this ginger hair and he scored goals, didn't he? And, you know, he was just like, he was the Alan Shearer of, of Newcastle, but obviously 50 years earlier. He was a big player and they sold him to a big club for, for big money. Newcastle sold him to Liverpool. I couldn't believe it. When my father told me, my heart sang in my boots because he was my favourite. I, th I think he was just before Jackie, wasn't he, yeah. Albert? Yeah. When I was going to Newcastle at that time, and, and Stubbins was my hero, and, and they sold for, I think, £13,000, which was a huge sum of money. But it just tore the heart out of me. I thought, oh, you know, what did they sold him for? Like, my best player, the club's best player was sold. I came from a small village, and a massive amount of people obviously earned their living at, as miners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the it was that that was the major industry. There was the constant iron steel works, you know, yeah. and there was the and there was the shipbuilding, of course, and there was the mining. And I thought the mining industry would employ more people than anybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my whole village were full of miners. Yeah. Miners terraces, miners houses, you know. We lived in mine probably all, yeah. all our lives, basically. I went to chapel every Sunday. Did you have to get dressed up? Oh yeah, oh smile, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And sing the hymns, the king of love, thy shepherd is, whose saviour never falters. I can remember the words of some after all these years. And I always remember some of the lunches, always Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> You know, Yorkshire puddings with yeah. roast beef and, 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 and roast potatoes and, and we always did apple crumble or something like that. And in those days, George, we always used to start with Yorkshire puddings as a first course. And they would have Yorkshire puddings yeah. with vegetables. And my father was a, and I and my brothers were all great Yorkshire pudding eaters. Yeah. <laughs> and mum was a terrific cook, of course. And she cooked off a, an oven which was next to the fire. We would always go for a walk in the afternoon. Every Sunday afternoon, after lunch, we'd go for a walk along what they call the New Road, which is the road out of Langley Park, heading towards Witten Gilbert. And I can remember always kicking stones, and I used to get little cliffs, and don't do that, and leave that stone alone. From my father, I used to kick stones all the way up the, up, up, up the, up the, up the road and back. Oh, I never missed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father never missed, and uh, we went down with a band. You know, we yeah. had we had a colliery band. Yeah, yeah, fantastic band we had. I learned to play the bugle, George. Did he play in the colliery band? 
No, no, I was in the Boy Scouts, in the, in the, the Boys Brigade, and a, and a member of the, the Lally Park Curry Band taught me how to play the bugle. Right. And I was a little boy, and I used to play the last post at the Cenotaph. Right. On um, Remembrance Day. Yeah. So I used to play it at the Cenotaph. In the Cenotaph in? In Lally Park. In Lally Park. In the village, there's a Cenotaph there, with all the rosettes, you know, and the, and the, yeah, yeah. And the not the rosettes, the... Um, uh, poppies. Yeah, what do they call them? Bouquet? No, not bouquet. What do we mean? Wreaths. Thank you very much. <laughs> All the wreaths, and they were, as they laid the wreaths, I would play the last post. Right. And then they would go to the uh, to the to the grave in the churchyard of the unknown soldier and do it again. Right. And I was the little boy who played the who played the who played the bugle in the village. Yeah. And so my father and I would go, and my brothers would go to. Uh, the gala day, gala, gala, gala. Yeah, ne the never missed. Yeah. Went down to the, on the race course yeah. where they had the assembly and, the speeches. and you know, speeches. Oh yeah, yeah. Part, part of that. With a great banner as well, lovely. You know the band, the big yeah, banners. Yeah. We used to walk. They used to walk through the street. You go right to the top end of the village and walk right through the village, and everybody would be out. And they used to play all the music down. Fantastic. I remember it. I used to walk with the band. Right. Down through the village, and they they play all these fantastic tunes. Yeah. When I think about it, I could cry. Yeah, yeah, the the yeah. comradeship and, 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 and you know and, and the uh, the honour you know between the miners and generosity to each other and, and the respect for each other you know and uh, and the bus would then take us to Durham and then we'll get out out of the bus at Durham. There was an assembly point and they would play again from where you got out of the bus. They yeah. all assemble. Then you parade right down Durham High Street, right onto the race course where you assemble for the rest of the day. And I walked with the band, my father and I walked with the band, and my brother walked with the band. And I was proud, I was a real man of son. My darling, was a coal hewer. You see, that's probably five foot deep, that yeah. coal, that seam. Yeah. But they were getting coal 18 inches high, 22 inches high. So he would... So he'd crawl to the, to the, and lie on his back, and he would do it that way. I mean, what a hard life. I mean, the hardest life of all. Yeah. Down in the dark, without your light, you couldn't see anything. And they did it with a pick and a shovel. I've been to the coal face. I did it for a year and a half. Not human coal, but repairing yeah. either either um, coal cutter which you broke down or the uh, or the um, transformers. Transform. You know, they transform the, the voltage from high voltage to a low voltage, things like that. So, so he, was a, he, you know, he was a great fan, and he, he, you know, he, he used to take me and my my brother to Newcastle, and he was a coal miner. 51 or 52 years of his working life and during that period George he missed apparently one shift, one shift yeah. incredible but that was my father I can remember him as though it was today where he did go to work white and he came home black every single day because there weren't the you know the colliery baths at the, at the, at the colliery in those days he washed every Every day, from a bathtub in front of the fire, he did. We didn't have a bathroom. The hot water was produced by a boiler next to a fire. On the other side was the oven. So the fire heated the oven. My mother would ladle the water into the tin bath. I couldn't wait to, to get out of it. No, you know, no. I knew what I wanted to do, to George. I mean, I, yeah. well, I had one thing in my mind. I didn't go to university. I didn't go to grammar school. I was I, I was out of the local school at fifteen and a half. Well, I went down to America because my father got me the job, and I, and I knew that if I didn't 
negative football, then I would finish up, maybe like my father, working down the mile all, all year, but not as a coal face, yeah. not as yeah. a miner, as an electrical engineer. You know. I was never late. Moon wouldn't allow me to be late, no doubt, so I always used to get a, you know, knowing my commitment and, and, and uh, the discipline. I used to get myself ready, and I used to put overalls on, and then I would set off and walk out the street. We had a colliery bridge which went over the railway line, and then you into the colliery with my sandwiches, bottle of water, and my kit bag, tools. And I used to uh, get myself in the electrical shop for uh, 7 o'clock. By about half past George, I would be in the pit shaft with me Mara, me mate, who was a qualified electrician, and I'd be down the mine by 7.30. How old were you when you went? 15, 15 and a half. And what are your memories of, of life down there? Not very good, George. There were certain parts of the mine that were lit up. But once we went to walk to the cold face, which was where we were operating from, we were in darkness. We had yet to have your lamp. And we used to walk two miles to half miles, sometimes three miles to where the cold face was, because that's where we were operating from. So we used to look after the coal cutters. Right, I was going to ask what your duties well, were. Well, they were looking after the... If the coal cutter broke down, we had to repair the coal cutter. And the lighting, we were responsible for the lighting, and the telephone system, and the transformers, you know, yeah. and all the cable work. And make sure all the heavy machinery for the coal cutting was operational. And George, I'm not kidding you, I've crawled in 18 inches. I don't know how deep we would be, George, 2,000, 3,000 feet, I guess. But I've crawled the length of a football pitch on my hands and knees. Well, crawled, not hands and knees, because I was working 18 inches. I've crawled in 18 inches, probably by props. The length of a football pitch to the coal cutter, which is at the top of the face of the coal face, because it had broken down. And George, I, to, I must be careful what I do, but I used to walk. Because the height would be about maybe four foot or five foot high. It wasn't, it wasn't, you couldn't stand up, you know. No, 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 no. They left the tunnels as low as possible. Right. They took the coal out. They didn't take much stone out. But the idea was to take the coal and leave the stone. Yeah. So I would walk with my back on here, like this, George, three miles. On the railway line, and then you could hear the, the, the trucks coming. And every now and again, there was a, a little, a little opening yeah. where they used to dig it in so that when the, when the trucks came past you, you could go in and let them pass you. The trucks passed, yeah. And in there, you could muscle down and stretch yourself, you know. Or I'd kneel on my horses and stretch me back. And then I'd set off again. I did that every day, George, for a year and a half. For a year and a half? Yeah. I couldn't wait till I was 17 <laughs> to sign pro. I had a terrific ambition, and it was to play football. But of course, I had to be good enough at 17 to persuade somebody that I could be a professional footballer. And so I played football with a, an effort of power, a desire to make sure that I would never spend my life down the mine. When I was at Ipswich, we went to play Derby, I think it was, mm -hmm. and we took the chairman, Johnny Cobbold, and the directors down the mine on the morning of the match, early, to give them a glimpse of what it was like down the mine. George, they couldn't believe it. They put overalls on, tin hat, battery, light, knee pads, 
because you know you had to have wear knee pads um, you could always on your knees and hacking away and stuff like that so they put the knee pads on and we walked them we took them down the shaft and they couldn't walk right to the core phase but we took them far enough to hurt them you know <laughs> to make sure they knew what it was like it was their most vivid experience in all their lives to be fair I, I, I respected the fact that they went down to see yeah. what it was like yeah, yeah. and they couldn't believe it they could not believe how people went down there and did that every day when you came, when you were back at Newcastle as manager, I mean, must, you must have been tempted. I mean, not that those the minds exist, but it would have been great to do that to the young generation of players, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? I see. <laughs> I see. Did you ever relate your experiences down the mines? George, one of the first things, <laughs> one of the first things I did when I became manager here, Beamish, where I lived, which yeah, by the way is two miles from here. Yeah. Did you take them there? I took them to Beamish. Did you? I made them all go. It was an outing. It was a bonding day. Yeah. We are going to go to Beamish. We are going to see Beamish Museum. The, you know, and see parts of the coal mining industry, what it was like. Some didn't pay much. I remember Marceline thought it was an absolute waste of time, you know. But Sheer and all, and Gary Spear and all that, and Shea, they all were, they all I made, I made yeah. them all go. Yeah, yeah. I made them all go. And... Uh, I think you sort of said that those the principles that you learned then, the sort of socialist principles of everybody having to work together and everybody sticking together, that stayed with you as well. Well, it? yeah, I mean, there's always a community spirit down the mine, I think, with everybody. I mean, to everybody then, I wasn't Bobby Robson, I was, I was just a kid. Yeah. You know, his father was one of the deputies at the colliery. You know, my father was quite well known, he'd, been, he'd worked there all his life. He became what they call a deputy and then he became an overman, which is a word to mean that you are over men. You are, you know, you're, you're, you're the boss of men. So my father rose to the ranks of, <laughs> like Colonel, to an overman, which was a high position. He was a very good miner, my father. He worked 51 years, 51 yeah. years down the mine. to go into Durham uh, sometimes on a Saturday morning to buy a record. I mean, my th one of my thrills, I must have got the money from my mother, my pocket money, I used to spend on records, which I used to buy like one a month. Not one a week, but one a month. What kind of records would you buy? Well, obviously the old, the old uh, favourites. Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Lena Horn, Nat King Cole, The Ink Spots, the Mills Brothers, a girl called Nelly Lucia. Have you heard of Nelly Lucia? No, Nelly Lucia. I became besotted with football a little bit after that, when I was about 15, 15 to 17. But you know, when I was 12, 13, 14, I mean, I remember playing in the back street with the tennis ball and playing headers off the walls and stuff like that. Lumps of coal. Uh, lumps of coal, lumps of coal flint, a flint, which wouldn't break up if you found a, a flint. Yeah. You couldn't break it up, could you? No. Well, with no. a piece of coal, you could, it, would be, it would be smashed into, into dust within 10 minutes, 5 minutes. 
If you had a tennis ball, you were lucky. Anybody who had a tennis ball was a was king. He got, <laughs> he, he got, he got a game. <laughs> but I always managed to have a tennis ball or a little, a bit, a slightly bigger rubber ball, you know, which I used yeah. to throw, play headers against the wall, you know. I spent hours, nights, weeks like that, George, months, shooting against the wall with a, you know, with a tennis ball or a little, or a, perhaps a little bigger ball, you know. And it's that kind of football, that sort of street football, where people really. I was a street footballer, George, without any doubt. I can remember playing vividly in the streets, in my back street, in the top of my street. The top of my street, the last house had this great big apex wall. We used to chalk a goal on it, we used to bang the ball at it night after night, shooting the ball at the goal. I remember I've seen in one of the book you called yourselves the Netty Boys. Cause he the Netty Boys. <laughs> yeah, we did, yeah. Because that's what they used to call the outside toilets, yeah, the, yeah, the netties. Yeah. So we used to play the ball off the netties. Yeah. The, the netty wall was the goal, so yeah. we used to had play headers, headers against the netty, netty toilets. I was 15, 15 years of age then, and I was a bit of a star, a little prodigy yeah. in my little village, yeah. and they were caught me, you know. Yeah. But they couldn't sign me, they couldn't touch me until I was 18, no. until I was 17, you see. Yeah. But they were aware of what it was in the, in the area. Did you ever have a chance to join Newcastle? When I was a kid, yes, yeah. yes, I did. I did. And I turned them down. Because they didn't really come after me. They, they sent their scout to see where I was signed for them. And where Bill Dodge and the full manager actually came all the way up from London and sat in my mother's sitting room and wouldn't leave until I'd signed the form. So I remember that. And did that, I mean, did that have an influence yeah, when you were signing players? Absolutely. I think... George, lots of times players sign for the clubs. I think lots of times players sign for the manager. Yeah. And if you've got both aspects right, big manager with a big name, and you with a big club, you won't fail too many times. But, um, you know, I remember Bill Dodgers in my house and persuading my mother and father and me that this was a club for him, that, that you know, they were a London club, weren't as big as Arsenal, but I would get a chance there. All I had to do was just show a bit of presence, a bit of worth, a bit of ability, and I'd get into the team, which I did. I was in the team within a year. So I remember him persuading me that to go to Fulham was a better deal for me than to stay in for Newcastle. I remember saying, but Newcastle keep buying the players, and you know the young players don't come through. And Anyway, he sold the story. And so I sat for Fulham on, on, the, on the fact that the, the, the manager had the the will to, to come from Fulham up to Newcastle, sit, sit in my mother's house in Lang Park and persuade them that Fulham was the best club for their son. And I'll, ne I'll never forget that. Never. I didn't just play football, I worked. At Fulham? Yeah. Did you? Do you not know that? No. Oh, yeah. I carried on my apprenticeship, electrician. I worked on the festival of Britain's site. Did you? Waterloo. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. The company was in Victoria. And they got part of the lighting contract for the festival hall, which they built on the Waterloo side of the bridge, didn't they? Yeah. You know the, the big festival hall? Yeah. I went for a few months, realised, you know, to do two jobs at the time was not going to make it easy for me to make the grade. Yeah. And I left, I said to my dad, Dad, I've left home to make the grade as a yeah. footballer. Yeah. Not a bit electrician. No, no. If I want to be electrician, I could have stayed at home. Yeah. And I felt I wasn't going to make it. I felt I'd be left behind if I continued this 
this way of life. That's a nice photograph. I should have that somehow. I should get that in print. He looked at me. I looked at him. He took my hand. He held my hand. He's a real gone guy and I love him. It was the Christmas New Year period. Because uh, we weren't playing and I was allowed home for the Christmas. I came from Fulham to Newcastle. Right, right, right. Yeah, to Durham. To the village where I was born. And they had a, a, the village hop, as they had in those days, you know. Well, I hadn't been to for one, because I'd, I'd left in the July anyway. I think it was every Saturday night, but I mean, that wasn't part of my life really. But that weekend, that Friday night or Saturday night, I went to the village hop, met Elsie for the first time, walked her home, pecked a good night on the, on the doorstep, as we did in those days, and uh, arranged to see her the next day where I took her to the flicks in Durham. Right. With a friend, she took a friend. Right. So there was three of us. And did you do that quite, quite regularly? Right? You, you, you had to go back down. I had to, the... I had to go back, back to. Uh, then we started to write to each other. Then we started to telephone each other. They really, I suppose, she came, became my girlfriend. Yeah. So, but you know, I, I never came home. I never came home until like, like, I never, never had any money anyway. I couldn't afford the train fare. Oh. She was a nurse. And she was only with less money than me, and uh, we used to wait, have to wait till the summer. I came home for the summer. So I met at Christmas and the next time I saw would be the summer. And so what kind of dates did you have then? Was it more cinema and more...? That's all. Walks. Yeah. Went, went for walks. <laughs> and, uh, didn't have cars, of course. I was 18, she was 17. She was studying on, on a... learned to be a nurse at Sunderland. We caught her for about four years, I think. I met her when I was 18 and I got married when I was 23. She was 22, and we courted that four years just in the summers, and I came home for Christmas. And then towards the end of our courtship, her parents let her come down to see me, and she stayed at my digs with a, a very uh, lookout landlady and landlord. There was no tomfoolery in those days, I tell you. No way. And I saw all the three cup finals, Arsenal, Blackpool, Man City. It's a fun player. I took Elsie, actually. She would tell you. <laughs> she was about this size. She was very big. And in those days, if you're just a reserve player, you got one ticket. Right, right. If you're a player of prominence like Johnny Haynes and I, you could get two. Which you had to pay for, three and six each. And I remember taking my wife to one of the cup finals. I think which which one, actually. I think it was the, maybe it was the third one, the, the 56. Yeah, 55, Man City. And Jackie got a goal that day in the air, 3-1. Jackie couldn't really head him. He wasn't a shit in the air. No, no. But he was obviously mustered downstairs. And she got a goal that day. Check in the air. And, I, and, my, and what my wife said, all she could see was when the ball went up in the air. You know, <laughs> and we still be on the go. Right, right. We did. We still be on the go. In the three and six in the air. Do you know, George, later on in life, in fact, much later on in life, I was manager at Ipswich at the time. 
So I'd had my career, my international career. Then I went into management. And I was yeah. at Ipswich. I was in middle seventies. I was a little bit in my pomp, I suppose. My secretary, Pat Godbold, rang me up and said, Mr. Robson, there's a Mr. Stubbins. It's an unusual name, it's Stubbins. And we're playing Liverpool at the weekend, that weekend. And I said, uh, Stubbins, she said, yes, he's a reporter. He's asking, would he, could he have it just for a minute, just to ask you a couple of questions about forthcoming match on Saturday at Liverpool. And that, that very rarely happened to me. I mean, I was, I did a lot of work with the local papers, but if she seen me in the backwater, so, you know, I didn't get many journalists from London or Manchester or ringing me, really, basically. And I said, he's a journalist, and, you know, something tweaked in my mind, because I'd heard that Albert Stubbins years ago had gone into journalism. So I, I said, I tell you what, I'll take the call, Pat. I remember the call as though yesterday. I said, before you say anything, Mr. Stubbins, I said, you're not, are you, by any chance? Arbustums, like the Arbustums, are you? That play for Newcastle. He said, well, yes, I am. I said, I forget what I said, but I said something like, ah, oh, unbelievable. Listen, Albert, I said, I called him over then. I said, listen, Albert, I'm so pleased to talk to you. I'm so pleased you rang. I'm so pleased I've taken this course because, Albert, you're my hero, fella. And he kind of, what? I said, Albert, you're my hero. I said, Albert, you can ring me every Friday for the rest of your life. Anytime on a Friday you want a story or you want something, you just ring me. I said, because you are my hero. I said, and I, and I related all, you know, George E. and George Pierce and all the Joe Harvey people that he played with. And uh, he, he, he couldn't believe it. And I said, Albert, I'm so pleased. I'll take your call anytime. I said, you give me such pleasure. But he rang me. He actually rang me. I could not believe my bloody hero ringing me. And I told him, you know. Sir Bobby Robson launched his foundation in 2008 following his fifth cancer diagnosis to find more effective ways to detect and treat the disease. Part of Newcastle Hospital's charity, the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation works within the NHS and in partnership with other leading charities and organisations. It funds cutting-edge cancer treatments and innovative cancer support services, including the clinical trials of new drugs at the Sir Bobby Robson Cancer Trials Research Centre. Sir Bobby described his foundation as his last and greatest team. He had no idea how large his team would grow or how much it would go on to achieve. For more information or to donate, please visit sirbobbyrobsonfoundation.org.uk. That's sirbobbyrobsonfoundation.org.uk.